1 Corinthians chapter 2. That's where we get to turn again this morning. 1 Corinthians 2, and it celebrates our Lord and his gift of the Holy Spirit. We've seen that a little bit already in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2, and we'll see it more as we go forward through our study in 1 Corinthians. But he really changes his course of Paul does, the writer of this letter, he changes his course of action or, or direction, I guess, and says, you know, it, it's wrong for us to listen and adhere and be so much devoted to the wisdom of the world when we have the wisdom of God available to us. Why would we turn back to that? Why would we go back to the wisdom of the world, the speculation, the, the really empty philosophy? It's not wrong to seek wisdom, but we know even from a thousand years before Christ, what is the beginning of wisdom? Well, Aristotle and, and no, it's the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding, giving God first place in our philosophy, our thinking, our, our asking the big questions of life. We come and say, God, what? What? What is this? What is the purpose of life? Where did we come from? Where are we going? What are we about? Who are you? How do we relate to God? How should we relate to one another? All these big questions about philosophy and so forth are answered in God as he's revealed them to us through his prophets, through his apostles, as we have it recorded for us in the scriptures. And so Paul is making the big contrast in terms of a fundamental nature, but also in terms of application. The fundamental nature is wisdom comes from God the application of that is y'all ought to get along. You all shouldn't have this party spirit, this factious uh, divisiveness, this one-upsmanship, you know, I'm of this party and I'm of this party. You just have the same mind. You, you have the same spirit. You have the same Christ. It's not that one has more, more of Christ than another. If you have that wonderful foundation, then act like it. In other words, Paul isn't just saying these things for our understanding. Oh, that's how it works but for our application in life, that we would walk in a manner worthy of our calling, that we would reference, explain, um, display the love of Christ, the righteousness of Christ in the way that we act. And so as he de devolves or, or describes these different things about the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we think it's not just for understanding, it's for living. It is for serving one another. It is for thinking less of ourselves and more of other people, even as our Lord Jesus did. Well, I don't have anything other than the beautiful picture of the scriptures to show you this morning on the on the slide, so you just have to look at the text, and that's okay. You can look at that. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We have studied up through verse 9 in the last couple of weeks, but here this morning we start at verse 10, and he's picking up the thought of what has God revealed to his people? What truth has God revealed to his people? And he says in verse 10, to us, but to us, God revealed them, that is his thoughts, his, the depths of God, the, the plans of God, if you don't mind specifically, the gospel, the message of salvation, the message of a holy God and of sin humanity and so forth, the provision of Christ. To us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the depths of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the depths of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now, we received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the depths graciously given to us by God, of which depths we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual depths with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the depths of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually examined." 
But he who is spiritual examines all things, yet he himself is examined by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will direct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Whenever you read in the scriptures, especially in the apostolic writings, you know, Paul and Peter and John and the others, when you have these pronouns, a pronoun is a, a word that stands in place of a noun, right? Like I, me, you, them, we, that kind of thing. You you need to, especially when you're talking about you and us or them, you really have to say, well, who is that we're talking about? We see him speaking here, he uses the pronoun I to some degree. He said that back in verse um, allow me to resume my spectacles. There we go. He says that earlier in the text. He says, I was with you in, in the weakness and, and the fear, much trembling. Verse 3, I came to you, verse 1. So he's talking about himself and his, his ministry among the Corinthians. And then he says here, to us God revealed them through his spirit. Or uh, verse 12, now we have received, not the spirit of the world. And then in verse, um, what the end, verse 16, we have the mind of Christ. Now, Talking about we, is is Paul speaking about we as a plural of reference to himself, just individually, as he does sometimes? Is it we of more of a, a wider circle of we as apostles, we as messengers of Christ? Or is he talking about we in terms of Christians, just redeemed humanity? Uh, those, as it says in verse 9, those who love him. Well, those are those are redeemed people, Christians that love him and are transformed by his grace. So how wide is the circle? of the we-ness, if you don't mind. And so he is, not smallness, I don't go into the Scottish stuff here, but just, uh, just who's who's reference here? I think, if you don't mind, fundamentally, Paul is referring to himself in connection with, and part of that explanation is he is defending his apostolic authority, his ministry in Corinth, because it becomes an issue, especially in 2 Corinthians, defending his apostolic work, defending the fact that he doesn't receive money from them. All of our other teachers accept money. They want to be paid for their services. Paul, you don't accept any money, for, so you must be a false teacher, right? No, he's going to answer that issue in chapter 9. But he he was teaching things that were out of stream from the wisdom of the world that the Corinthian church was really after and said, that, well, Paul, I don't know that you're really an apostle because you're not teaching the same thing as these other folks that we have online. Not online, but next to us and teaching us and so forth. And so he says, no, to us, Paul, and I think the other apostles, but we can't just stop there because the apostles, the prophets, Old Testament prophets, and even the New Testament prophets gave a foundation for us, right? Ephesians 2 verse 20 says we have this foundation. The apostles and the prophets are the foundation of the church. And we listen to them. The truth that they have spoken to us is informing us. We sang one of our songs we talked about, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. We've not seen Christ. It's one of the requirements of an apostle to have seen the resurrected Christ. We've not seen them, but we believe based upon the testimony of eyewitnesses. Peter, Paul, John, the other folks. You think, well, Paul wasn't there at the resurrection. Okay, read Galatians 1. You can figure out how in the world did this happen. Or Acts 9, the salvation conversion of, of Saul, Paul. The point is the apostles serve as that segue or or introduction to this revelation, this wisdom that God is revealing to us, wherein we can all receive. So if again, he's talking fundamentally about his role as an apostle, but us, through the apostles, receiving the revelation of God, through the Holy Spirit. Now he makes a contrast here in verse 10. To us, God revealed them through the Spirit. He's talking about the Spirit. He talks about the Spirit throughout this, whether the Holy Spirit specifically or the spiritual ones, those who are in Christ, those who have received the Holy Spirit as a gift of God, uh, like Ephesians 1, 
uh, is it 17 thereabouts says that we are we have been sealed with him in the holy spirit of promise and he has taught us these wonderful things through his spirit and so we have a revelation this word revealed is the same as we really celebrate i suppose in, in the revelation of our lord jesus christ the apocalypse is this word this just means unveiling or revealing or putting it on display god has put these things on display in other words if you don't mind the the uh, title of a book that Francis Schaeffer wrote probably back in the 70s. Um, he is there and he's not silent. You know that book? He is there and he's not silent. It's talking about God. God is and he has spoken. He has talked to us. He's talked to us through his, his word. Hebrews 1 says many times, uh, in many diverse manners, God has spoken to us, but he's spoken to us now through his son. So we have a revelation. God is putting himself on display, but the problem with that is, and we'll see it, Paul really develops that idea, not everybody, not everybody accepts that revelation. Not everybody sees it. Not everybody appreciates it. And even they cannot. They don't have the ability to receive this. It says here, God has revealed them through the Spirit. God has revealed His truth. And it's not just His truth as opposed to, well, somebody else's truth. There is no other truth. It's not like you can exchange it on the, on the, um, uh, stock exchange or something, get, you know, go return this. I want a different kind of truth because like, his truth isn't really nice to me. Well, it's, it's God's truth. And part of God's truth is he is holy. We're not, but we can be made holy through Jesus. What's wrong with that? I mean, that's, that's pretty good, wonderful exchange that, that not of the truth, but of ourselves. We can be different than what we are now. Paul says, God has revealed those wonderful truths, the truths of the gospel, the wisdom of God through the spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. One thing you have to appreciate in this verse is that he, Paul, as the writer here, makes a very personal distinction between the Spirit of God and, if you don't mind, God. And you think, well, how, how can that be? Both are, are personal beings, and yet both are God. How can that be? How can it be described here as uh, the, the Spirit... Um, it says, where is it? Verse 11 says, the Spirit of God. Elsewhere we could see um, the Spirit of Christ. Where John 14, when Christ says, I'll give you another comforter, another counselor. Uh, and so that is not just somebody who's different from Christ, but himself. And we see the Spirit of Christ indwelling us. And so, wait a minute, is this another? Is this a fourth? Is there a fourth member of the Trinity? Well, no, because Trinity means there are three. So what are we talking about? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There is a unity and yet a diversity. God the Spirit knows the depths of God, if you don't mind, God the Father. What we need to appreciate is that there's one God and yet different persons of that one God. How can we explain it beyond that? It's, it's hard. But you, you realize that the, the uh, Scripture upholds that from the beginning of the, of the book to the end of the book. There's one God, definitely, in the beginning God created and so forth. But then we see, even in that chapter 1, let us make man in our image. And in the image of God, he created them. What? was it? Is it y'all or is it you? And if you don't mind the ext extension of that, is it all y'all? Or is it, or is it, what, what is it? But we see this, Paul is making this distinction. The spirit of God, the spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. God's plan, as we read, I think it was opening scripture reading last week from Romans 11, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. We cannot get to the bottom of this, but the Spirit of God can. 
You think, well, how can he do that? Because he's God himself. It's not like he, he needs to have access, you know, permissions, all these things about, you know, credentials, and well, I have access to this much, but I can't get to that because that's secured. The Holy Spirit has access to every little bit of God himself because he is God. And thankfully, God the Father revealed these wonderful truths through God the Spirit because the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God, the, the you know, plumbing the 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 deepest, darkest, because God is exposing these and bringing them to light to our understanding. He is exposing things for us. And he gives an example, verse 11, who among men, or who is there among men, who knows the depths of a man, of an individual, except the spirit of the man which is in him? And you think, you ought to remember this in terms of marriage, specifically, but any kind of relationship. How in the world do I know what you're thinking unless you tell me? And that works both ways. How can you know what I'm thinking unless I tell you? The spirit of a man, woman, boy, girl, knows what's going on, and even then it can be kind of confusing. I don't know what I mean, what I feel. I, I just need to eat and sleep and go take a nap. You know, I don't know what I'm thinking. I don't know what I need. But communicating these things, how can anyone else know what that person is thinking unless there's communication? So verse 11 says, who among men knows what's going on? Well, we need communication. We need revelation. Uh, but he says it's the spirit. The spirit knows what's going on. The spirit of the man uh, has uh, control over the self and has opportunity to, to consider and, and plumb the depths of these things and to evaluate and, and to make decisions and, and then act accordingly. Well, verse 11 says, even so, if that's true about humanity, how much more so is that true about God? Even so, the depths of God no one knows except the spirit of God. In other words, the spirit of God knows what's going on. He has insight, not just a little bit of insight. He knows exactly what God the Father intended. He go, knows what God uh, is has revealed. He knows exactly what to say, how to say it, and even how to make people understand it. Which wouldn't that be a helpful thing? Because a lot of times we say things, and we know what we mean, but we did not communicate it very well. I would just... What did you just say? I mean, even the words you said, they didn't make any sense. The way you put those words together, I don't think that was English. I don't think you followed the rules of grammar of, you know, all, what? Try that again. Well, the Spirit of God knows exactly what God is, is trying to communicate and does communicate. And he makes not just the revelation of it, but the understanding of it. He helps us to appreciate it. And he says here in verse 12, Thankfully, again, the contrast, we have received not the spirit of the world. Because, okay, if, this, if we receive the spirit of the world, well, the spirit knows what's in the world. Do we really want to know what's in the world? No, we don't really want to know. Well, we know what's in the world. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. And guess what? Those who do those things will perish. Okay, we don't want the spirit of the world. We don't want to uh, exchange the Spirit of God and say, I'd rather have this over here. kind of reminds you of, I don't know, that guy in the Old Testament who exchanged his birthright for a dish of red stuff. And that was it. He was done. Wait a minute. You, you sold your birthright? And then later the blessing of, of being the firstborn? What were you thinking? Well, I was hungry and I wanted it. So he exchanged the glories, the blessing of God for the Spirit of the world and said, well... And even then, he didn't repent of that. He just a horrible thing, horrible exchange. But Paul says, we have not received that spirit of the world. We've received something entirely different. We have received the spirit who is from God. So again, going back to that Trinitarian idea, 
that we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We have the Spirit that is from God, but it's God's Spirit. So it's a, a procession, another theological term, that God, the Spirit proceeds from God, the Father, and God the Son. He comes to us. He is God, but he is from God. You see a, a unity and a distinction, a separation. Uh, well, not even a separation, a distinction of, of persons there in the Godhead. But we see again that we don't have that spirit of the world. Why would we want that? Because those, if you remember back in chapter 1, the world is perishing. God has canceled the world. It's being abolished. We think, God, would you make that happen soon? Because this world is crazy. And we remember this world is not our home. We're just a passing through. But we want to reflect, communicate, demonstrate God's truth, the, the truth of his word in this lost and dying generation because he's saving people out of this world system. He is saving people out from under the prince of the power of the air. He is the one who is redeeming humanity. And so he has given us the spirit of God, not the spirit of the world. That's, that's foolishness. That's, that's being abolished. And he wants us through his spirit, the spirit that is from God. Why? So that we may know the depths graciously given to us by God, the depths of his truth. He's given us a spirit. He's not given us the spirit of the world. And he wants us to know, to, to appreciate, to understand, even to explore. What does this mean? And how does this truth relate to this truth? And how does this affect our lives? And how does this affect, how does this give us hope in this, again, lost and dying generation? How in the world does this all work together? Notice it says, we may know the depths graciously given to us. God is so gracious to, to give us what we need. And we think, well, I don't, I don't know that I really needed that. I wish for something different. You know, I got to ask for patience. I don't want experiences to help me learn patience because that's that's disappointing. But God, in his wisdom, graciously gives us not just the understanding, but the ability to work through these things. And he has, uh, in his in his grace, lavishing lavishing these things upon us. In other words, in his in his who he is as a generous, gracious, um, uh, kind, benevolent God also just heaps these things on us. Not doesn't give us just a little bit, you know, kind of like you get a, uh, a fruitcake at Christmas time and you, maybe you just want a little piece. But they give you, I mean, just take the whole thing. I don't need the whole thing. But God just heaps these blessings on our head and he graciously gives us more than we can appreciate, more than we can understand even sometimes. God, help me. Help me to understand your word. David, in the Psalm 119, had so many different expressions about, you know, like, open my eyes to see wonderful things out of your law. I want to see these things. I don't always appreciate what's going on. Even Peter, the Apostle Peter, said of Paul's writings, Paul, our beloved brother, Paul, writes things that are sometimes difficult, difficult to understand, which the unlearned and unstable pervert to their own destruction. But Paul says, or Peter says about Paul's writings, yeah, it's kind of hard to understand sometimes, but listen to it and grow and be challenged and, and uh, accept the fact that God is revealing himself. It's not like you're trying to learn algebra or, or uh, ancient history or uh, you're, you're studying God. Ought you not be at the end of yourself? I don't get this, this Trinity idea. I don't, I don't understand it. Well, the scripture teaches it. Scripture teaches it a very, plainly in some respects throughout the whole book. It's not something that we have one verse and, okay, we're going to go on that. No, he has taught us these things. These are graciously given to us by God, not for confusion, not for befuddlement. We just, hmm, I'm not sure what God meant by that. I guess 
Hmm, I don't, but he has taught us these things. He's taught us what we need to know for life and godliness. Second Peter chapter one teaches. He says, again, we have received these things. Who is this? I think particularly, initially, the apostles have received these things given the Spirit of God. That Spirit then comes to others who have received the Word of God through the apostles, and the Holy Spirit then applies that understanding, applies that illumination, other theological term, I suppose, to Christians to receive what God has graciously given to us. God is the one who gives these things. Thankfully, because the world, again, from chapter 1, the world has this whole thing over here, God has this over whole thing over here. Guess what is more stable? Guess what is more profound? Guess what is more powerful? Guess what is life-changing? Not the wisdom of the world. I mean, okay, the wisdom of the world can do certain things, can answer certain things, but not correctly sometimes, and certainly not in a transformative way. If you don't mind, the wisdom of the world, which I would also include not just the philosophy, but also the philosophy of the soul, which is psychology or psychiatry, secular psychology, the worldly psychology is, is oftentimes very good at describing things or making observations about human uh, conduct and choices and 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 uh, what are people doing and how does this affect relationships and how does it affect their daily life and function and, and uh, their thinking and processes and so forth. What worldly psychology fails at are two things, probably more, but two things are they don't acknowledge God often. And there's su- such a misunderstanding of the human nature that, well, human nature is basically good. We have the tabula rasa, right? It was Jean-Jacques Rousseau who had that whole idea, the, the, the blank slate, humanity and uh, nature versus nurture and so forth. But it's a totally, where's human, or where's total or entire depravity? Where is that doctrine in, in secular psychology? It's not there. But also it's normal. You describe all these disorders and, and, and whatever over here, but what is normal? What is what are we supposed to be like? Are we supposed to be anxious or depressed or uh, obsessive over certain things? And, well, I don't think so. That's described, described as a disorder. But what is right? Well, thankfully, Christ is that which is right. And we've seen that before, that Christ is our standard. He is our maturity, is the measure of, of, of stature, the fullness of Christ himself. And so we see, again, that God has graciously given these things. He has taught us that we should speak these things. Now, again, referring to the apostolic role, going back to the beginning of chapter 2, but he says, we speak these things. Verse 13, we speak these depths. Now, notice something, maybe in, it's highlighted or, or d- demonstrated in your translation. In this one, anyway, it has depths beginning at um, verse 11 in italics. In other words, Paul assumes, I think, that we're carrying forward this idea of the depths of God. Who who knows the depths in the, of a man except the spirit of man within him? Who knows the depths of God except the spirit of God? And so he's talking about the depths, even back from verse 9, the, verse 10, it says, the depths of God. So he's talking about the depths, the understanding, the truth of God, and he, he carries that idea forward. Isn't it stated explicitly? The translators are interpreting or, or supplying this word, depths, and we'll see another way in verse 13, how there is a word that is brought forward or translated, trying to help us understand what was Paul saying? What's he referring to in this way? He says, of which depths, of which truth of the gospel, the message of God, we speak, again, as apostles and now as extension us as Christians. And he says, we don't speak it in words taught by human wisdom. Or he says, we do not speak um, 
in the, the basic idea is we don't use the words that are taught by the wisdom that is merely human or based upon, again, the philosophy of this age, the, the, the ruling principles and so forth of this age. We don't use those kind of words. And we think, okay, we're supposed to be using Greek and Hebrew then when we talk to each other? It's not that kind of thing. But the content of what we're saying, when we communicate God's word, it's different. So different. I remember, I won't mention the name of the movie, but there was a movie that uh, just horrible things were happening, and it was getting all kind of, I mean, things were happening. It was horrible, bad stuff. It was just nasty, whole business. But then it, it came, the, the shot came to a guy who was reading Psalm 23. Probably not even reading it, reciting it. And in that context, my whole attitude changed. I mean, people were talking over here, but he's speaking the word of God, not taught by human wisdom, Nobody taught David how to say, you know, all these things about, no, the Lord is my shepherd. And he goes on to talk about this. We don't use words that are according to or taught by or celebrated by or offered up by human wisdom. Now, humans communicate truth. Humans communicate God's word. But the basis of it, the origin of that, it's not human. Paul made that big point in Galatians 1 again when he's talking about his apostolic authority. I didn't, I was not taught it. I did not receive it from men. I received it from a revelation from God himself, from Christ himself. He says, we have received, excuse me, verse 30, we have not, we do not teach in words taught by human wisdom. But, again, the contrast, in those words, if you don't mind, those words taught by the Spirit. That contrast, again, we don't have the Spirit of the world, as it said back in verse 12. We have the Holy Spirit of God teaching us these things, and therefore we speak. We have a boldness, we have an authority, both the apostles obviously have that, but we, by extension, based upon, as we pay attention to God's word, we have that same ability to be bold, to be objective. To I mean, We're just stating God's word. We're reading the scriptures. That's why it's important for anyone who wants to be to serve as a pastor, elder, overseer, to fulfill what Titus 1.9 says, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he'll be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Contradict what? Him? No. Contradict the apostolic, the prophetic word. We pay attention to his word. We speak not according to our wisdom, not according to the, the brightest minds in, in humanity from across the ages. We teach God's word, not taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. And here, this last phrase in verse 13, how do we speak? How, how, what's, what kind of describes or, or characterizes our speech? And he says it this, and, and different translations come up with, with different things because there's, there's some missing words we have to supply in this text. And so he says combining or explaining or interpreting uh, spiritual truths, maybe, or spiritual things, spiritual depths. What is he talking about? He's talking about, again, spiritual, not spirit of the world, not spirit of man, spirit of God. We're communicating. And th this word um, uh, translated here, how does it translate here? Combining here in verse 13, combining spiritual depths with spiritual words. You see depths and words in this translation are italicized because they're not in the original text. The translators are trying to help us uh, see what, what, is, what is Paul's argument here. There are other translations. Uh, King James has comparing spiritual things with spiritual, I think New King James has spiritual words. Um, New American Standard has combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. NIV explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. 
And then there's a, a footnote, an alternate reading in the Legacy Standard Bible, interpreting spiritual things for spiritual men. In other words, what, what is Paul saying here? We're speaking God's word. We're speaking these spiritual truths, which she's going to talk about in just a moment. The natural man has no appetite, no ability to understand these things. But we are explaining these things, again, the apostolic role of teaching God's word, teaching these things. They are spiritual depths or spiritual words. They are spiritual truths. They can only be revealed by the Holy Spirit of God and accepted by those who are in the Spirit. So they're spiritual words. And so the question comes, that last phrase, with spiritual whatever, these different translations, spiritual men. The question is, and not to get too whatever, the question is, is he talking about a uh, a thing, a truth, a word, or is he talking about those who believe that? Is he talking about talking spiritual stuff to Christians, to believers? I'll let that be. There's different translations. I think they're all trying to, to really summarize what Paul is saying here. The point is, we're talking spiritual stuff that only spiritual people uh, appreciate and, and can understand. We speak it in a way that is not um, kind of woo-woo or, or mystical, nothing like that. We speak clearly, as clearly as we can, but it is spiritual truth, spiritual wisdom. And he says here in verse 14, that contrast again, not the spirit of the world, not, the, not, not here the natural man versus the spiritual man. A natural man, and this isn't... Notice, just look ahead in verse 1 of chapter 3. He talks about fleshly men. I, do not, I was not able to speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to fleshly men, as to infants in Christ. Fleshly men, that word fleshly is different than what we have here in verse 14, a natural man. Uh, it's a different term. In other words, verse 1 of chapter 3, he's talking about Christians, but they are immature. Here, though, natural man is that one who has the spirit of the world, who's not a believer, who is not in... Christ is not in the Holy Spirit, and so, or the Spirit is not in him. And so a natural, or if you don't mind, unsaved man does not accept the depths of the Spirit of God. Huh. Does not accept the depths or the truth, or the doctrine of what the Spirit is teaching us. Why not? Well, verse 14 says, they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually examined. Okay, so first of all, if you don't mind, there is a volitional aspect. He does not. He refuses to accept the depths of the Spirit of God, because it makes him look bad. Oh, wait a minute. There's a holy God, and he's saying that I'm not holy. I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough for God. How can this be? And somebody had to, I mean, really, I'm so bad that I have to die for my sin? I'm not as bad as that guy. Or why does Jesus have to die? That's foolishness. We don't need a suffering Messiah. We need a conquering king. All this, I mean, it's just foolishness. It makes no sense to a natural man. So is there, there's a volitional aspect. He does not, will not accept the depths of the Spirit of God. But then there's an incapacity. Uh, there's, there's a foolishness in them. It's just moronic. That's the word. We saw it back in chapter 1. They are just make, absolute absurdity uh, to him and his, his profound judgment. I mean, he is the measure and stature of not much, actually. Uh, why are we asking what you think about this? God has spoken. But they say, no, they're foolishness. And he says he cannot understand them. Notice it says he cannot. kind of reminds us of what happened with Pharaoh in the beginning, Pharaoh, uh, king of Egypt at the time of the Passover and the Exodus, he, he refused, but then his heart was hardened. And so it wasn't just that he volitionally said, no, I don't know who this God is, and I'm not going to let his people go. Get back to work. But then it became, he could not. 
subject himself. He could not submit himself to God. And here it says he cannot understand them. There's an incapacity, inability, because why? These are spiritually examined. This person does not have the spirit. We get frustrated sometimes when we share the gospel and share the gospel with the same person and nothing. Nothing happens. Where's the appetite? Where's the understanding? Where, when is the light going to turn on? We speak the gospel and they don't have any appreciation for it. It's kind of like when you talk about different diets and, and you ought to do this diet and that diet. And people, I don't, I don't, I don't what? What's this? It makes no sense. It's foolishness. Why should I do that diet? I'm fine right here. I'm 800 pounds, whatever. I'm doing fine. Get out of my life. There's a volitional aspect. There's a foolishness aspect. But then there's an incapacity. They just can't. They have no ability to appreciate these things. They are spiritually examined. They are exam examined or appreciated or proven to be true spiritually. And again, it's not that we're making that mystical and kind of the woo-woo aspect. We are saying it's the Holy Spirit. And we say we're, we're evangelizing this person. They're not believing the Holy Spirit has not given them life. God not brought them to repentance, has not brought them to faith. What's our role? What's our message? What's our responsibility? Preach the gospel. We can't strong-arm people. We can't uh, argue people into the kingdom, but we can preach the truth. And so he says, these people cannot do this. They are spiritually examined. But the contrast, verse 15, he who is spiritual examines all things. The Christian examines all things. Same word, spiritually examined, the version of verse 14 and here, he who is spiritual examines all things. We can, we have access to the whole book, if you don't mind. In our present age, the apostles did then and now written down for us in the scriptures. We have the whole book and we can take God's word and examine everything in the light of God's word. We can examine ourselves and say, whoa, I didn't know. You know, again, secular psychology tells me this and, and describes me this way, but I didn't realize there's, there's not just a different truth, there's a deeper truth to who I am. And not just a truth about who I am, but who I can be through Christ and gives me hope that Christ is saving me. So spiritually examining all things is what the Christian can do. The world can't do it. The world tries to have a, a comprehensive a worldview about everything. I cannot because it discounts really the fundamental reality, and that is God. The world wants nothing to do with God, or, if you, or at least that God, let's substitute another God. In fact, I'll be it. Oh, I'll be it. No, foolishness. There is a God, and you're not him. Fundamental rule of theology. He has revealed these things, and we can examine all things. And notice it says, he himself is examined by no one. In other words, the world has nothing on us. If we're out of step with the world, it's not us who are out of step. It is the world. If we are in step with God then forget it. I don't care what you think. I don't care what you, uh, uh, you know, ex extrapolate on or, or, or uh, celebrate. I don't, I'm not examined by you. I'm, I want to be pleasing to God. I want to be, have my thoughts conform to his likeness, to think his thoughts after him. I want his mind in me. Now, leads us to verse 16. And he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, which wonderful text, right? verse 13, I think, is the principal text. But if you read beginning at verse 9, I think it is down to verse 16 of Isaiah 40, it reminds us so much of the last two chapters of Job, where these questions are coming. And it celebrates God. You know, were you there? Do you know this? Have you ever done this? Have you ever broken the morning or, or called the morning, called the sun? And Isaiah 40 celebrates all this about God. And it says here in verse 13, as, as Paul quotes him here, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will direct him? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has known, and in Isaiah's prophecy, he says, who has known the mind of Yahweh? 
who has known the mind of Yahweh that he will direct him? And so Paul, quoting from Isaiah, and there's some other things going on in the quotation that I don't have time to get into from Isaiah, he says, who has known the mind of Yahweh? Who has access to this thinking, this thought, this truth of God? Well, we know, because Paul just said it, the Spirit of God knows these things and has revealed these things to us, graciously given to us these things. So who has known the mind of the Lord? Well, Christians do, from based on the apostolic authority and so forth. But then it says, who's going to be the one to direct him or the one to counsel him? First, or Romans 11 also quotes this verse from Isaiah 40. Who's the one that's going to say, God, you really should have done it this way? Or God, let's have this, you know, you know how people do it in employment circles, you know, the annual review or something. God, would you sit down with me and let me just review with you how you did this year? Who is going to do that? Well, unfortunately, most of us, because we tell God what he ought to have done and why didn't he do it earlier. And God, if you just listened to me for a change, this would have worked out a whole lot better than what you did. Whoa. I mean, have you ever heard that out of your mouth or in your heart? Who can do these things? Who's going to direct God? Nobody. God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. But notice it says, and the mind of, of Yahweh from Isaiah's text, here Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. He's talking about the mind and the mind. Two words, same word, two uses of the same word in verse 16. First applied to Yahweh. Now Paul says we have the mind of Christ. I, nothing is, in other words, we have, again, the Trinitarian God celebrated in this text God the Father, God the Son, Christ himself here in verse 16, and the Holy Spirit that leads us into these, these wonderful truths. We have the mind of Christ. We have, I think it's not an esoteric or mystical kind of thing. We have the mind of Christ written down for us, and we have his Spirit indwelling us who guides us into all these wonderful, wonderful truths. He gives us the understanding of it and the application of it. We have the mind of Christ. Initially, of course, the apostles, but now by extension, we can think God's thoughts after him. So much of salvation doctrine speaks about the renewing of our minds. Romans 12 and verse 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Ephesians 4, 23 says that we are being renewed in the spirit of our mind. Colossians 3 also speaks about this, that we are thinking matters. We've got to think righteously, biblically, according to God's word. We have the mind of Christ. Well, then we chase back to the world and say, well, what does the world think about this? And, you know, look at the comments and all the, you know, all the, what? Why? We have the mind of Christ. We have God's wisdom. We have, it's not to say we can't listen to these things and engage the culture, but we do it on what basis? The basis of God's word. Not saying, well, okay, we'll set the word of God aside so we can argue on your, no, you can't argue on their terms. You've got to speak the word of God because that is where the authority is and that is where the hope is. Because God's word changes lives. Paul, again, is speaking of all these wonderful things, the truth, the depths of God, but he does it in the context of, hey guys, and he's going to return to this idea in chapter 3, you guys are acting so immaturely, so foolishly, so worldly. You have the, the mind of Christ, but you're acting with all kind of uh, jealousy and strife that's going on, verse 3 of chapter 3. In other words, doctrine matters in our lives. We need to think what is right and then let that percolate through our lives, living in peace and love and harmony with each other. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for your scriptures. We're thankful for your spirit. Again, you've not left us as orphans. You have taught us these wonderful things, and we pray that we would be those who do these things, who understand, of course, better, but then do your word. It's not enough just to look at your word and study it and, and underline it and, and take notes and all that, but let it transform our minds 
Let it transform our values. Let it transform our intentions, our, our purposes in this age, and of course, in our relationships. Please, let us be those, like Isaiah 66 again said, God, you look at these people, those who are humble and contrite of spirit and who tremble as let that be us, that we would receive your word implanted, which is able to save our souls, that we would pay so much attention to your word and be obedient to it, that we would have that conviction. One of the works of the Spirit is conviction of sin. And so please help us to receive that and to embrace it and to change by your grace. Please help us to be uh, ambassadors, to fulfill our role as ambassadors of this wonderful message of reconciliation. God in the world, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, because Christ died. He was a substitute for our, our sins, and we can have that assurance that our sins have been forgiven. Again, we pray you'd save and sanctify for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.